Uh, good morning, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's my pleasure to be up here before you this morning. We are in the middle of a series on the book of Galatians. Uh, it's a letter that Paul, one of the apostles, wrote to a, to a geographical region of churches in what is called Galatia, or modern-day Turkey. And he's writing, confronting them about some things that have been happening in their midst, that they have moved off of the gospel. The theme of this book is the gospel. And so I wanted to find that term for you before we even move any further into the into the sermon, because we've been talking about this over and over again, but it bears repeating. And what we mean by the gospel, uh, let me, just one story. Um, I believe I believe men, I believe wholeheartedly that little girls are supposed to have love affairs with their daddies. And so um, the, the boys have been gone from our house for the last two or three days. And, and so there's been a lot of daddy daughter time. And so I had Abby up here. Ashley's in the nursery and, and Abby's up here and she's hugging on me and kissing me like she always does. And she 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 leans and she says, Daddy, I like you so much. And I said, Abby, I like you, too. She said, Daddy, I like you more than you know. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus and God, the father, that the Trinity likes you more than you can possibly imagine. That he that he has set his love on you. Not because of anything you've done, not because of any performance, not because of any obligation, solely because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And if you have faith in him, then all that Jesus has merited in the father's heart is yours by faith. That's what we mean by the gospel, that in the gospel, we are more sinful than we ever dared dream we are. And at the same time, we are more loved than we ever thought possible. That's what Paul's writing to these these churches in Galatia. And he's he's defending the gospel against the Judaizers, these people from Jerusalem who are coming in and are trying to distort it. And so we come this week to Galatians chapter two, and we're going to read the first 14 verses here in Galatians chapter two. And, and, and here we're going to see Paul telling about two visits. First, his visit to Jerusalem, where he meets with Peter and James and John, the pillars of the church. And then a second scene where Peter comes to visit Paul in Antioch. And we're going we're gonna to look at how this plays out here at the beginning here of Galatians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, you can and you can read along. If not, uh, it is in your worship folder in the insert for you. It is also on the screen behind me. You can follow along with me as we read this text. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, confronting them about how they're being tempted by these men to move off the gospel. He writes... Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them. We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as excuse me, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. 
And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, second visit, Peter's visit to Paul. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles? To live like Jews. This is God's word. Now, in this passage, we see echoes of what we talked about last week. We see Paul once again fighting for the truth of the gospel. And that's what this whole first couple of chapters is really about. That Paul is fighting for the truth of the gospel. And last week we said that only the gospel is worth fighting for, but you have to fight for it. We have to be a people. We have to be a community of people who fight for the gospel in one another's lives. And what we see here, this is just by way of introduction, what we see here, there are two things that the gospel does. The gospel keeps us from being persecutors, but it makes us confronters. And again, kind of tying this in with last week, the gospel keeps us from being persecutors, but it makes us confronters. You see, without the gospel, you'll be a persecutor. And the apostles, what we read here, the apostles have just agreed with Paul. The matter's settled. Those who are pillars have have brought their ruling. And yet, if you look down there in verses 11 and following, The circumcision group is back. I mean, they're back. They're back at it. They can't stop. Why? Well, if you believe you're saved by works, you have to be a persecutor because remember what we said last week? If you're basing your relationship with God upon your performance, then by definition, there's going to be an insecurity that is fostered in you and you're never going to be able to be sure where you stand with God. And therefore, there's a deep need to feel superior to others to prove yourself And if you put those two things together, if you put a deep insecurity and a need for superiority together, it will make you a persecutor. The way you know the gospel is beginning to take root in your heart is that you stop persecuting, you stop running people over, you stop bashing people and constantly putting them down just to prop up your own sense of of righteousness. And the gospel will will cut against this. It will keep us from being persecutors, but it will also make us confronters. It will make us willing. It'll it'll secure us enough to make us willing to fight for the gospel in one another's lives and to risk disapproval for the sake of loving one another and saying hard things. I came across a quote by a man that I respect a great deal this week, and he just had this quote. He said, the besetting sin of a tender heart is compromise. The besetting sin of a tender heart is compromise. You see, the gospel is is going to free us from the need of approval enough to where we're not persecutors, but we're willing to be confronters. We're willing to go after the truth in order to set one another free. And so that's what we see here. And so as we talk about this passage this morning, here's what we're going to see. There are two visits. First, there's Paul's visit to Peter in Jerusalem. And then secondly, there's Peter's visit to Paul in Antioch. And both of those scenes give us something that are very important. First, Paul's visit to Peter, we're going to see what the gospel is. Again, going back to this one more time. In Paul's visit to Peter in Jerusalem, we'll see what the gospel is. We'll get a definition of the gospel. And then in Peter's visit to Paul in Antioch, we're going to see how the gospel works or how we begin to apply it 
to our lives. So those are the two points for you there in your outline that I gave you in the worship folder, which doesn't match the rest of the worship folder. And if you know me, you know that drives me insane. The colors don't match because appearance is that important to me because the gospel's not yet taken root in my heart. So pray for me this morning as I preach to you that these things will become real to me as well. So let's look at this together. First, Paul's visit to Peter in Jerusalem, what the gospel is. Okay, here's kind of the setting of what's going on here. Paul is being opposed by a group he calls in verse 12. If you look down there, the circumcision party. Now, these people were Christians, Jewish Christians who have come behind him to the places where he went on his missionary journeys and begun to call into question his gospel. They began to say, you know, that guy, Paul, he may not really know what he's talking about. And the specific issue is is what should be required of Gentiles in order for them to become Christians. So, in other words, before Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, the church was located in Jerusalem and it was primarily made up of Jewish people, Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians supposedly continued to follow the law of Moses, all the things you read about in the Old Testament. Uh, they were circumcised. They followed the dietary laws they, 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 and the clean laws. But when Paul and Barnabas were sent from Antioch to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples began to believe in the gospel, put their faith in Jesus, and come into the church. And this created a huge problem because they didn't bring with them the same cultural religious customs. They weren't circumcised. They didn't follow the dietary laws. They ate meat on Fridays to the glory of God. I mean, you know, that's never mind. I'm a meat eater. That, you know, that stuff in there about all that, I don't know. And, you know, and so a controversy arose because Paul and the circumcision party um, disagreed about what should be required of these Gentiles in order for them to become Christians. So, for example, if you would if you could go there in your Bible in Acts chapter 15, Verse one, here's what we read. Some came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they believed. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Now, I thought of modern cultural equivalents of this. Unless you've been baptized in our denomination, you can't be saved. Unless you are a Republican or conservative politically, you cannot be saved. I mean, whatever it may be that we put out there. These Judaizers, Judaizers is what we call them, they slipped into the Galatian churches and they were claiming that the gospel Paul preached was contrary to the gospel that was being preached by the apostles in Jerusalem. And, of course, that implies all sorts of things. Well, Paul, you're not really, you're, you're an apostle. You're not really an apostle. You know, therefore, Paul's not credible. His understanding of the gospel is flawed. And these are the things that Paul's defend, been defending to this point in this letter. So now, in chapter 2... To prove his point further to the Galatians, he tells them about a visit he took to Jerusalem. And Paul goes to see Peter and the other apostles, and he goes to set before them, for their ruling, the gospel that he has been preaching to make sure, if you look at the phrase in verse 2, that I was not running or had not run in vain. You see, Paul understood that the issue presented a great danger. It wasn't just a matter of opinion, but cut to the very heart of Christianity. He knew that all he had worked for among the Gentiles would be undone if these Judaizers were left uncontested. He would have run in vain. It would have all been for nothing. The whole thing would come crashing down. So no matter how much progress had been made, if the truth of the gospel was lost, then all was lost. And that's what he says in verse 5. If you look there in verse 5, he says to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The truth of the gospel was at stake. And so Paul went. Now, the issue 
The issue being decided here was, as the gospel was going beyond Jerusalem to the nations of the world, what must be required of Gentiles? And here's the real crux. If I could put it in a sentence for you, it's this. Do, they have, do Gentiles first have to become Jews in order to become Christians? I mean, that's the issue. Do they have to be circumcised? Is there some requirement other than faith in Jesus that they have to meet to be acceptable? And Paul's answer and my answer, our answer is an emphatic no. You see, the argument that Judaizers are making is that even Gentile Christians should be made to keep the ceremonial law of Moses. Now, what's that? What do we mean by that? If you if you are familiar with the Bible at all, you know that in the Old Testament, at the very beginning, in the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of God is spelled out for us. And part of that law are all of these ceremonial um, rules and rituals, circumcision and, like I said, the dietary laws and all of the rules you read about in the Old Testament about being clean. And the purpose of the ceremonial law, I met with my friend Adam Davidson, who's a worship pastor in Lakeland, and he said it perfectly this week. He said that the purpose of the ceremonial law was to show you, and here was his phrase, how to position yourself for a relationship with God. It was, in other words, if you didn't follow these rules, then you were unclean and therefore you couldn't go into God. You couldn't be a part of the congregation of God's people as they gathered for worship. And so you had to be careful. You had to be really careful about what you ate and about who you came in contact with and, and where you went so, so that you could be acceptable, so that you could be clean, so that you could be um, presentable before God. And there were all these rules you had to follow about how to make sure you were clean and therefore accepted. And then despite all of that, when the people came to the temple, there were still washings they had to undergo and a bloody sacrifice for sin. And so the purpose, what we believe, the purpose of all of those, if you read it in Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, the purpose of all these rules is to show you your need for a Savior, to show you that you can't make yourself clean and beautiful. That was the purpose of that part of the law. But the circumcision party is saying to the Gentile Christians, you've got to adopt these rules in order to be accepted. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. You've got to do this stuff, too. And so Paul steps in and his argument is very clear. He says, if you submit yourself to these clean laws, you are in essence denying the very foundational truth of the gospel that we don't make ourselves clean by following the rules. No, they point us to Jesus who has made us beautiful and clean by taking upon himself our sin and shedding his blood to cleanse us, and by giving us his perfect record of righteousness. That's the only thing that can make you clean. That's the only thing that can make you beautiful. And to insist on anything else other than faith in Jesus is to destroy the truth of the gospel. So, which way would Peter, James, and John go? Paul comes to lay before them his understanding of the gospel. Which way do they go? And if you look in verse 6, You'll see the key phrase that Paul is recounting to his readers here as he presents his gospel to those who seem, don't you love his language, to those who seem to be influential. And look down there, he says, I say, I say, who seemed influential, those, they they added nothing to me. They added nothing. See, they agreed. The gospel is not Jesus plus anything. It's grace alone. They proved Paul's point that if you add anything to Jesus, then you've distorted the true gospel. If you say you have to believe in Jesus and fill in the blank in order to be saved, then you've turned to another gospel, which is no gospel at all, which is what he said in chapter one. Paul, and here's what's really scary. Here's what's really scary about what's going on here. If you look down there, Paul calls the opposition false brothers. He calls the circumcision party false brothers. They're not Christians. 
You see, Paul and the circumcision party, they're not two different denominations. They're two different religions. And what I find to be true is there are a lot of people in churches in America who call themselves Christians. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died on the cross for their sins, but they belong to the wrong religion because they've made Christianity a matter of what we have to do to make ourselves acceptable. You'll hear people say it like this, I've received Jesus as my Savior, I've asked Him to forgive me, and now I've promised to really live for Him. And it's the story I told you about the famous preacher in London, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, would, who used to go to people and say, you know, are you a Christian? And people would say, well, I'm trying. And he would say, well, then you're not a Christian. You see, in many ways, we do this all the time. We try to add Jesus. We try to add to Jesus. It's not enough to rest in him. There's a this, this sense that we have to prove ourselves. We've got to distinguish ourselves. We've got to qualify ourselves. We've got to make ourselves acceptable. And so there are all kinds of self-salvation projects out there. There's the Jesus plus well-behaved children project. The Jesus plus the thin waistline project. The Jesus plus read through your Bible in a year project. And all of these are ways we try to make ourselves clean and beautiful. They are. And this is the default mode of the human heart. This is what you have to understand is true of your heart and mind that all of us, we're constantly, we're constantly trying to clothe ourselves in robes of righteousness of our own making. And the gospel confronts us with the truth of our own weakness and sin. But who likes to be weak? I mean, who likes to be needy? And so it may not be circumcision, but we're all working strategies for how to make ourselves clean and beautiful. George Whitfield, who was a um, preacher in colonial both England and the United States, uh, and I don't have it for you up here, I'm sorry. Jonathan's not here, so this whole thing is screwed up this morning. But um, he, he had this quote in a sermon that he preached, and I'm just going to just read it to you, and hopefully you can follow along. He says, before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, but likewise you must be troubled over your best duties and performances. He says, when a poor soul is somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord, then that poor one, being born under a covenant of works, flies directly to a covenant of works again. As soon as he is awakened and senses his need for God, he says, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do everything I can. And certainly Jesus Christ will have mercy on me. Did you hear the order? I will reform. I will be mighty good. I will do everything I can. And after that, certainly Jesus Christ will have mercy on me. George Whipple goes on to say, he says, And as Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and his performances to hide himself from God. See, we're all doing this. We're all coming up with strategies, duties, and performances that somehow qualify us, that somehow prove us and distinguish us to be worthy of God's love and His acceptance and His forgiveness. And Paul understands that if we do that, what we're doing is we're putting ourselves into a state of spiritual bondage. And so in verse 4, he says the whole point of all of the confrontation that is happening here is he's fighting for their freedom. And this is a theme we're going to come back to in this book of Galatians. To add anything to Jesus is to create bondage to that thing. I mean, that's what's so tragic. If you, if you are going down the Jesus plus the well-behaved children project, then you will become a slave to your children's behavior and how it projects upon you. And your emotional state will just go like that. And it's the same thing with the Thin Waistline project or the Reading Through the Bible in a Year project. When you're doing well and you're caught up on your Bible reading, woo, you're soaring high and it's fantastic. 
But when you're behind, the, the, you just get crushed by the despair of how you're terrible and you stink and you're a terrible Christian. And it just creates spiritual bondage. And Paul says, I'm fighting for your freedom. The freedom of knowing that salvation is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And there are lots of things you have to do to be a Christian. But there's only one thing you have to do to become a Christian. You have to stop working. And you'll have to stop trying to make yourself beautiful and acceptable. All you need to become a Christian is nothing. And yet it's the hardest thing in the world to do. See, that's what the gospel is. That's what we learn in this in this visit that Peter that Paul makes to Peter. But here we but now we turn the corner and we want to look at Peter's visit to Paul in verses eleven through fourteen and ask the question then how does the gospel begin to work in our lives? You see, in Peter's visit to Paul and the other apostles, we learn the gospel is is Jesus plus nothing. Paul says they added nothing to me. The gospel is the truth that we are saved, not by law keeping, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus does everything. We do nothing. It's a gift of God's grace. We can't earn it. It comes to the sick, not the healthy, for sinners, not the righteous. And to receive this gift, we have to repent. We have to repent of all the ways and all the things we've sought to replace God with, but we've also got to repent of our righteousness, of all the things, that all the good works that we're doing that we think will save us but can't save us either. And so in, second, in, in Peter's visit to Paul in Antioch, in the second scene here, we see how this gospel begins to work, how we take the gospel and we begin to use it. And that's really what we want to get to today. We want to figure out how do we become a people who believe this gospel, take it into our hearts and lives, and begin to use it. And so let's look at this scene, beginning in verse 11. And the scene goes like this. Here's the story. Peter is, enjo- is enjoying table fellowship with Gentiles. Okay, uh, Something that's forbidden in Judaism. So then, so then what happens is a group from James, a group from Jerusalem, part of this circumcision party comes... And Peter draws back and wouldn't eat with Gentiles for fear of what the envoy from James would think. And Paul steps in and says that he's acting hypocritically. He's not in step with the truth of the gospel. Do you see that phrase in verse 14? That's really important. That he's not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul says. Now, what does that mean? Now, the word there, not in step with the truth of the gospel, the word is unique in all of Greek literature. It's unique in the Bible. You don't find it anywhere else. And it's the word orthopodeo. Okay, now put those things together. Now, some of you who did the word power made easy or whatever it was. Do you remember that in high school? Right. Podeo. What's a podiatrist? A foot doctor. Right. So podeo means to walk. It refers to the course of your whole life. It refers to the trajectory of your life, the direction that your life is taking, the result of your values and choices and decisions. It's, it, it means the sum totality of, of the course of your life to walk. But then the word ortho, it means what's an orthodontist? It's a person who takes teeth and makes them straight. Praise God. Right? So ortho means straight. So orthopodeo means to walk straight. Now this is what happens, and I'm sure this has never happened to anybody in the room when the police pull you over. And it's late on a Saturday night, and they have questions about where you've been, and they demand orthopodeo. Right. The line goes out. And we see if you can walk the line without falling to one side or the other. Can you walk the line without falling to the right or to the left? Now, Paul's saying now, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that the gospel has a trajectory. It has a line. And really, honestly, I like the NIV translation better here than the ESV. 
Uh, because in the ESV, it says that the gospels put down footsteps. They're steps in the sand. The gospel has huge implications. And our job is to be diligent to think out the implications of the gospel and then to bring every part of our life in line with it. The gospel sends lines out through your life. And your job is to think out the implication of the gospel to make sure you walk the line and don't fall off to the right or to the left. So, for example, we are sinners saved by grace alone. Amen. I know this is a Presbyterian church. You can say amen. OK, so let's try that again. I've got to I've got to really I've got to train you in this. OK. OK, we are sinners saved by grace alone. Amen. Amen. OK, good. We believe that that's the truth of the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're a sinner saved by grace? Then how dare you ever be proud or smug or self-righteous? You look down your nose at someone else. That's not living in step with the truth of the gospel. Do you get that? Thank you. All right, Charlie, go for it. Woo! We're going to have it's going to that's good. Okay. Pride, pride is not in line with the truth of the gospel. It's not keeping in step with the gospel. Because we are sinners saved by grace to be proud is to not be affected by the gospel. But the truth of the gospel is because of Jesus, we are loved. We, we, we're sinners saved by grace. But in Jesus, God loves us. He likes us more than we know. Right. Do you believe that? Then you can't live in fear either. You can't be gripped by insecurity. You can't live for the approval of the other people because that's not living in step with the gospel either. That's not that's not to be affected by the truth of the gospel. And so what Paul is calling us to is to think out the implications of the gospel of Jesus so that our thinking and our emotions and our behavior, our whole life comes to be congruent with the truth of the gospel, that we're following its trajectory, that we're putting our feet down in the footsteps that the gospel is laid down in the sand. So let's apply this very, very, um, very carefully. So how is Peter not walking in line with the truth of the gospel? So Paul gives us a case study for how this works. And there are two things. There are two ways that Peter was not walking in step with the gospel. And we're going to look at both of them as we come kind of to the end of what we're going to do this morning. He, he was not walking in step with the truth of the gospel, number one, in what he did. And number two, in why he did it. And what Peter did and why he did it. So let's first look at what Peter did. Peter refused to have table fellowship with his Gentile brothers and sisters. Now think about he drew back. He separated himself because this table fellowship was forbidden in Judaism. And Paul is saying, in essence, you, you know, Peter's saying to these people, here's here's what Peter is saying to his Gentile brothers and sisters in Jesus. You don't meet my standards. So I can't even eat with you. And Paul says that this act was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, how? Here's the way Paul would have said it to Peter. Peter, God did not have fellowship with you on the basis of your race and culture. See, that's what that's what Paul's going to going to do in just a little bit further down in Galatians 2. He's going to say we're justified not by observing the law, but by faith. And so Paul's saying to Peter, God did not give you fellowship on the basis of your religion or your culture, but on the basis of Jesus. How dare you turn around and have fellowship with other people on the basis of their race and culture? Peter may have some basic understanding of the gospel as it relates to his relationship with God, but he's not thought out its implications. There's grace here. Peter's. Peter's fired up about the grace that he has from God, and yet there's no grace as he extends it to the people in his life. Peter's not treating the Christians in Antioch 
as he had been treated by God. And Jesus told a story that illustrates this really well about a man who came to a king who owned, who owed the king a nation's debt, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And yet the king granted him pardon and sent him on his way. And the first thing the man did when he left the chamber room of the king is he went out and fi- found the guy who owed him five bucks and he literally put his hands around his throat and strangled him saying, give me my money. And Jesus' point was, that man... That man had no idea in treating his neighbor that way. It was completely incongruent from the way the king had just treated him. And there was wrath and judgment and condemnation that came down on that man. See, that's that's how it works. We can't have grace here and not work out the implications of that grace in the way we live with one another. And that's it's really important to see this. And here's what I want you to notice. Notice here with me that Peter doesn't just tell excuse me. Paul doesn't just tell Peter, Peter. You're breaking the rules. There's a racism rule, Peter, and you've broken it. What does he say? He doesn't say it that way, does he? He says racism is not in line with the gospel. And that's really important because it helps us to find sin correctly. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is failing to work out the implications of the gospel. It's forgetting you're saved by grace. It's a form of self-righteousness that Jesus is not enough, that you've got to find something else. And sometimes... It's your race and culture, and that's what Paul's accusing Peter of here. Now, when you and I make sin a violation of the rules and nothing more, then all we're thinking of it is in, in an external fashion. And you're, what's happening is, is when you define sin that way, you're not getting on the inside and discovering the spiritual roots of the sinful behavior. And so nobody can really do anything about it. It's like every sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. The typical sermon goes like this. Here it is. I mean, this is this is... What you know, this is the sermon I grew up with. Hey, here's what you should be doing. And then an extended conversation about all of the ways you're not doing what you should be doing. Now, you know what? Boop, get out there and have a nice time. Let's get go. Let's get going. Get busy. Man, I'm getting amens now. This could get out of control. We might be in trouble. Do you hear what I'm saying? Here's what here's what you should be doing. Here's all the ways you're not doing what you should be doing. Hey, good news. Get out there. And what I've learned is, is nobody's taking the time to help me, to help you. Nobody's saying, yeah, here's what we should be doing. And yeah, here are all the ways that, that we're not living up to what God has called us to. But why? What is it on the inside? What is it that we're wrestling with on a heart level that makes us unable to live in the calling that he has given us? What are, what are the whys? What are the motivations? What's gone wrong on the inside? And Paul goes beneath the surface and says, here's the reason. Here's why Peter is doing this. Peter, you're trying to find something besides Jesus to cleanse and beautify you. Peter, Jesus isn't enough. So you're using your race and your culture to feel righteous. And that's why Peter, Paul says, this is so important. He's exposing the roots of Peter's sinful behavior. And so this is not just about racism. It's about all of the strategies we're working to prove ourselves better than others and more talented than others and more virtuous than others and more disciplined than others and more committed than others. You see, Peter's not walking in step with the truth of the gospel and what he did, but here's what's great. As Paul exposes for us, it's not only that, but it's also why he did what he did. Paul unpacks Peter's heart as he describes his actions. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. He says... Down in verse 13, he says, Peter and the rest of the Jews and even Barnabas, which grieves him greatly, acted hypocritically. They were play acting. They were not being their real selves. They withdrew and didn't eat with the Gentiles, but not because it was a matter of conscience or conviction. See, God had gone to great lengths. If you go back 
If you want to read this afternoon, read Acts 10 and Acts 11. And there God went to great lengths to teach Peter this lesson that it was appropriate and good in light of what Jesus had done for Jews and Gentiles to eat together. That was the goal. That was supposed to be what came out of the whole thing is that Jew and Gentile would eat together. And God went to great lengths to teach Peter this lesson. And so and so it wasn't that Peter had a guilty conscience about eating with the Gentiles. And so when the men from James came, you know, he said, you know, I've I've not been doing the right thing. And so he withdrew. It's just the opposite. He let the pressure from the Jews from Jerusalem cause him to go against what he knew was the truth. And that was his hypocrisy. His decision to withdraw was rooted in his desire to meet their expectations and not his personal convictions. He was seeking their approval. And here's what's so gross is that he was willing to sin against his Gentile brothers and sisters just to gain the approval of these men from James. And Paul says that to do that is not to live in step with the truth of the gospel, to be willing to do what you know is wrong. Teenagers, hear me, please. Teenagers, to be willing to do what you know is wrong just to gain the approval of your peers. Now, how is that not in step with the truth of the gospel? Well, to answer that, let's ask, why did Peter do this? What does Paul tell us about what Peter's motivations were? And in verse 12, he tells it to us. He says Peter was afraid. He said he was afraid of the circumcision party. Now, theologians and commentators are divided about what Peter is afraid of, but this much is clear. Peter, Peter in verse 7, is given the title Apostle to the Circumcision. I mean, he was the man and it was going to cost him dearly to not meet the expectations of those who came from James. And maybe they would question his leadership. You know, he stood to lose power and authority and influence. And so he was not willing to risk their disapproval. Peter's heart is being exposed. Peter is the rock. He's the leader. He's well thought of. He's an apostle. And you see, that's his, that's his self-salvation project. That's his shtick. And so when it's threatened... When that thing that he has put his hope in is threatened by the coming of the men from James, he needs their approval so much that he would draw draw back and withdraw from his brothers and sisters and even refuse to eat with them because he needs their approval so much. So much he's willing to deny the core truth of the gospel to get it. His motivation is fear. It's not in step with the truth of the gospel. There's a verse... Um, that I am praying for myself this year. This is my verse for the year, and it's in John, First John, chapter four, verses sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen. And in First John, John writes about himself: "We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us." And then he goes on, and it's just beautiful. He says, "There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love." Now, ask this question with me: Why is Peter so afraid? Here's the answer. Because he doesn't yet know he's loved. He's yet to come to know and to believe the love that God has for him. He's still looking for the love and acceptance from other sources. The line the gospel sends out through our lives is that Jesus, even though we're sinners, even though we're selfish and lazy and arrogant, we're loved. God likes us more than we know. Jesus shed his blood to make us clean. He lived a life of perfect obedience to make us beautiful. And we did nothing to qualify ourselves for this. And we can do nothing to disqualify ourselves from it. 
And so to live in step with the gospel is to live without the fear of rejection. And what John is saying there in those verses that I'm memorizing for myself this year is that there is an emotional wealth that can be ours in the gospel that can totally remove fear. So much so, it does away with all fear that we don't have to live for the approval of others because we have in the gospel, we have the approval of God. C.S. Lewis in his Weight of Glory says that there's a longing in each of us, and this is so profound to me. He says there's a longing in each of us to, to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off. And I quote, he says, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside. This is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And I'm going to be honest, that makes so much sense of what we've been reading in John's gospel for the last couple of weeks in our community Bible reading. If you want to look back at your assurance of pardon in John 14, verse 20, here's the promise Jesus makes to all those who believe in him. He says, I am in my father and you in me and I in you. And what Jesus is saying in that phrase is that what the gospel has made possible, I mean, this blows my mind. The gospel has made it possible for us to enter into the eternal communion of the Trinity. That that loving fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Father in the Son and the Son in the Spirit, that we're in. That's what John's saying, we're in. The door has been opened. All of our longings for acceptance and our need for validation and approval can be satisfied in Him. Now, can you imagine that? And what does that do to fear? See, that's what Paul's getting at. He's confronting Peter about his fear, about how it's not in step with the gospel. And so to conclude this morning, let me ask this question. Why do we sin? Is it because we're not trying hard enough? In some cases, maybe. But my experience is, a lot of times, no, that's not it at all. It's not because we're not trying hard enough. It's because we're not resting in Jesus enough. Jesus is not enough. We've not thought deeply enough about the gospel. We've not thought out the implications for our lives. And so Martin Luther, <laughs> Martin Luther, the, the, the reformer, talked about the gospel. And he says, he says it this way. Um, he says, here we learn the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article, the gospel, well, that we teach it to others and that we beat it into their heads continually. Doesn't that sound like Martin Luther? Right? The gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine and most necessary is it that we know it well, that we teach it to others and that we beat it into their heads continually. Now that's growth in Christianity. That's the way it happens. Now, so my question is, who's doing that for you? Who's beating the gospel into your head? So that it gets at not just the outward obedience or disobedience of your life, but the inward motivations of the fear and the pride and the insecurity that move you to do things that are not in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need the gospel beaten into our heads continually. That's why I'm so thankful for this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, because it's going to do that. Who's doing that for you? Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come and do that. As weird as it sounds, <laughs> as weird as it sounds, as we as we sing together and as we continue to meditate this morning on the truth of the gospel and how our lives can be in step with it, would you come and beat the gospel into our heads? Jesus, you are blindingly beautiful. That you would love us as you have, as undeserving and unworthy as we are, 
and all of the ways that we've been offensive to you, that you would not hold those things against us, but that you would come and freely give yourself in our behalf to cleanse us and to make us beautiful and to set us free, to set us free from any attempt to cleanse ourselves and to make ourselves beautiful so that we can live in the freedom and the joy and the security and the hope that the gospel gives us. Oh, Father, there's so many ways that I claim grace for myself and refuse to give it to others. There's so many ways that I've not thought out the implications of the gospel in my life, that I've not traced out the lines the gospel has has put through my life and sought to keep in step with it and not fall to the left and to the right. Forgive me for my thoughtfulness. Help us to be a people who cherish the gospel, who who seek to know and believe the love that you have for us, who teach that, that principal doctrine of our faith to one another and beat it into one another's heads. Help us to not be persecutors, but to be confronters, to fight for the gospel, in one another's lives. For the sake of your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Um, um, If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then everything you just sang is true. And isn't it good news? Um, There is a freedom and a joy and a hope that can be yours solely by coming to Him with nothing. And knowing that if you come to Him with nothing then you gain everything in return. And so receive the benediction this morning if your faith is in Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.